to the sixth episode of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your tried and true host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. We continue our journey through season one with episode 10, By the Numbers, and episode 11, Yesterday Died and Tomorrow Won't Be Born. Now I'm back in the box room for this episode and I've got a slightly different setup. I actually put some effort into it that will hopefully cut down on the weird echo that occurs because I'm in a unfurnished room. It might also cut down on my annoying habit of talking with my hands. We'll see. Hope springs eternal and all that. Apologies if the sound or the volume is weird because much like my life, this podcast is a work in progress. So, since there's really not much else, let's go to Hawaii. Look at this. Numbers ticket? A winner! I bought it this morning in Lunalilo Park. Oh, no kidding. What do you get for it? 175 bucks. Oh. Now, you and I can do Hotel Street from one end to the other, first class. Uh, thanks, Joe, but I better stick around. I'll have you back by 6 o'clock. Oh, yeah. That's what you said in Saigon. We didn't get back for two days. Yeah, but that was unavoidable. (laughs) Episode 10, By the Numbers. Air date, December 12th, 1968. Directed by Seymour Robbie. He'll direct four episodes. And written by Mark Rogers, who will write three episodes. Private Jerry Franklin is on R&R in Honolulu, waiting for his wife to meet him at the designated R&R bus stop. However, she's not on the bus. Again. Jerry's buddy, Private Joseph Cruz, offers to take him out to do Hotel Street from one end to the other to get his mind off his troubles. He can afford it because he won $175 on a numbers ticket he bought in the park, and all he has to do is cash it in. Jerry declines, not wanting to risk missing the next bus arrival, and possibly his wife. So Joe goes to collect his winnings from John Lowe, but Lowe tries to blow him off saying that he has him confused with someone else. Joe does not blow and follows Lowe and his buddies into an alley, still insisting that he pay on the ticket. A fight ensues, and just as Joe is getting the upper hand, Lowe stabs him to death. After Joe's body is discovered, the governor complains to McGarrett about the state of Hotel Street and how it should be safe for the servicemen to spend their money without being murdered. Steve agrees, and he meets with his team to discuss the case. There is no apparent motive at first, as the most obvious motive, robbery, is ruled out because of $25 found in Joe's wallet. When McGarrett talks to Corporal Anderson about Joe, he finds out that Joe liked to gamble, and he's directed to talk to Jerry. Jerry informs him about the numbers ticket, but he was so caught up in his wife not showing up that he really didn't pay much attention to it. The only thing he can say is that he thinks it was green which directs Steve to Philip Lowe, a nightclub owner who is known to run numbers. Steve has him brought in and talks to him, but this Lowe isn't very forthcoming. Steve points out that the ticket was green, which means that it was one of his, and that one of his runners was likely the cause of Joe Cruz's death. Lowe generously offers to give a donation to the man's family before he leaves. Speaking of Philip Lowe's nightclub, that's where Jerry is, drowning his sorrows and dancing with a woman who is most definitely not his wife a woman by the name of Irene Park. 
Meanwhile, his buddy's killer is only a few feet away drinking at the bar, and when Philip comes in, he summons John to his office where he slaps him for his discomfort. He knows his little brother is responsible for the soldier's death and that he's also probably responsible for missing money out of the last two bags because sadly, little brother is a heroin addict and he needs to support his habits somehow. Turns out it's by running numbers on the side. Joe died because John couldn't pay out. Back at the bar, Jerry is getting progressively drunker and more flirty with Irene, who is actually working for a guy named George Barker, who also works for Philip Lowe. George is trying to take over, and Irene lets him know that Jerry would be the perfect fall guy. Irene takes a very drunk, barely walking, but enthusiastically singing Jerry back to Lowe's house. Philip Lowe arrives a little while later, and shots are heard. 5L finds Philip Lowe with Jerry Franklin's ID bracelet in his hand. The army has an APB out on him, but Steve wants him first and tells Jin Ho to find him. He then tells Kona to find out about John Lowe and George Barker, numbers two and three in Philip Lowe's organization. Finally, he tells Dano to look into Philip Lowe's personal life. McGarrett makes himself useful by talking to Saul, the bartender at Lowe's club, who tells him that Jerry was almost too drunk to walk, let alone drive, and that Jerry left with Irene. Speaking of Irene, she and George meet up. 5 is asking for her and George tells her to stick to her story that she and the soldier parted ways in the parking lot. Irene also tells him that Jerry has been calling the club looking for her. On the run, Jerry ditches his soldier clothes for civvies and buys a newspaper carrying the story about how he's suspected in Philip Lowe's death. Unbeknownst to him, the man who really killed Lowe, one of George's goons who goes by the name Tato, is following him. Jerry goes back to the cheap hotel he's staying in, has a bit of a breakdown, and calls for Irene at the club yet again, annoying the shit out of Saul. Daniel finally talks to Irene at the club. They know she was Philip Lowe's girlfriend and that Lowe bought her the house that he was killed at. Irene tries to charm Dano, but it doesn't work out. Danny tells her that if she didn't kill Lowe, then she knows who did, and then leaves her to sweat. Kono and Chin Ho go to check out the hotel that Jerry is staying in, but notice Tato getting his shoes shined outside and recognize him as one of George Barker's goons. As they apprehend him, Jerry leaves the hotel unobserved. Tato's gun is identified as the murder weapon and Tato clams up, but Steve has it all figured out. Tato works for George and George works for Philip Lowe. Irene was playing both sides. George wants to be number one and the only one who's standing in his way is John Lowe. Well, I guess Jerry is also kind of standing in his way, but George is going to try to two birds with one stone this. But we're not going to talk about that because that strays into spoiler territory and we want to keep this spoiler free. Instead, let's just chat about this episode. So there's actually a lot going on in this episode. There's many layers to this episode. And yet it doesn't feel as convoluted or hard to follow as, say, uh, 24 Karat Kill did. Because we have Philip Lowe, we have his two underlings there, his little brother John, who is a heroin addict who is not only stealing from his brother, but also running numbers on the side in order to support his habit. And it's because of this that he ends up killing Joe Cruz. And then on the other hand, we have George Barker, who is in cahoots with Philip Lowe's girlfriend, Irene Park, in order to basically eliminate Philip and take over his numbers business. And it's George who, with Irene's help, sets up poor Jerry to take the fall for Philip's death. And then later he tries to orchestrate John Lowe's exit as well. 
So like I said, many different layers, but at no point does it feel too confusing or so confusing that you can't follow on along or you can't make the connections. You can't keep all of the players straight. So it makes for a rather compelling episode because you're sort of unraveling things as the episode goes, but you're not exactly doing it in time with McGarrett and his team. You're getting information that they don't have, but then they have information that you don't always have, and it's revealed a bit later, and it helps you put certain puzzle pieces together, and it's it's really, it makes for an interesting episode. It makes for a good watch. What makes it interesting, too, is that we have so many bad guys involved in this episode. And they're working against each other, and they're working against our protagonists, and they're working against poor Jerry there. So that makes it a little more enthralling to watch. Thing is, at least for me, the more often I watch this episode, because I do like this episode, please understand. I, I do love it. I do love it. But um, the more I watch it, the less sympathetic I feel towards Jerry Franklin. Really, the only guy you should truly feel bad for is, is poor Joe Cruz there. According to the chaplain, his his game is games. He likes any kind of games. Dice, numbers, whatever. He likes to gamble. And so, which is, it's a bit of a vice, but he's obviously not painted as a bad guy. This is not a, a bad thing. He's a lucky guy. He likes the game of chance. You know, this is just one of his hobbies. Because it's not painted as a bad thing. It's not painted as a vice. So all he did was buy a numbers ticket. He won and he went. He goes to collect on it. He ends up getting killed. You feel bad for him. You also are in awe of his fighting skills because he's taking on three guys. And not only is he like getting the upper hand, but he never at any point loses his garrison cap. That is amazing. He had to have had that thing Bobby pinned to his head. If you don't know what a garrison cap is, just Google it. It's the, like the triangular cloth hats that uh, servicemen used to wear because I don't think they wear them as much anymore. Anyway, so you feel bad for him. He's married, he's got two kids, and he's found dead in an alley. Jerry, on the other hand, at first you do feel bad for him because he's obviously having problems with his marriage. Obvious, I mean, it's got to be rough. He's a 21-year-old serviceman. He's been serving a year in Vietnam. His wife is back in Wisconsin. That's got to be hard. The dude's not that old. His wife probably isn't that old. You know, so here are these two young people going through very, very difficult times. So you do feel bad that she hasn't shown up on this bus yet to alleviate some of his his misery and suffering. He wants the marriage to work. That's clear. He's willing. He, you know, he forgoes hanging out with Joe on Hotel Street so he can wait for the next bus for several hours, sit there and wait for his wife. And so you really feel for him in that moment. But then when McGarrett comes to talk to him, you realize just kind of how self-absorbed he is. He was so caught up in his own problems because when McGarrett first comes to talk to him, his first thought is that something has happened to his wife because that's why she hasn't shown up. And then when he says, no, this is about your, your friend Joe, and he's like, oh, yeah, isn't that great? You know, I have a wife that won't show up, and now Joe's dead. And it's just like, I get that you're uptight about your wife, but... Don't you think that it might be a little bit significant that, you know, your buddy that you've just gone through 12 months of combat with, it was murdered in an alley? Don't you think that warrants a little bit of something other than your own selfish thinking? Because as he says to McGarrett, that he was so wrapped up in his wife not showing up that he didn't even really pay attention to the, the ticket that his buddy had. Everybody else saw the number on it was eight. We all saw that it was green. He wasn't even sure about that because he was so wrapped up in his own problems. And even when McGarrett's talking to him, he's still wrapped up and moaning about his wife not showing up yet. 
So you get a glimpse of just how, maybe how immature he is and how uh, slightly self-absorbed he is. Because then later we see him dancing with Irene at Philip Lowe's club and making eyes at her and she gets them drinks and they're sitting at the table and he's flirting with her and she points out his wedding ring and he's like, yeah, I thought about taking it off, but I didn't. And she says, you know, it doesn't bother me. So here is this guy who is so uptight about his wife not showing and the first thing he thinks of is, you know, well, my wife didn't show up, so I'm just gonna go to some club and pick up some dame. It's really, really hard to maintain sympathy for that because there were a lot of better choices he could have made. But if he did, we wouldn't have an episode. So Irene gets him progressively drunk her, takes him back. There's kissing involved. We do see there's kissing involved. So as as lit as this dude was, he was intending to cheat on his wife, like all the way. But unfortunately he passes out and shots are heard and Philip Lowe's dead. Now he's on the run for murder. That really puts a kink in that. And by kink, I mean complication, not something sexy. Anyway, we see him, he, he ditches his clothes, his service clothes, and he gets some civvies, a really kind of hideous brown shirt. We see him in the hotel room and he's got a picture of his wife and he's he, he's been drinking gin, it looks like, and he's crying and having something of a breakdown. And he's holding this picture of his wife and he's like, why didn't you come? I need you. I needed you. Why aren't you here? And I'm just like, excuse me? How is this her fault? None of this is her fault. All of this is your fault. You made bad decisions and now you're on the hook for them. Your poor young wife in Wisconsin has no clue what's going on. Don't you go laying this all at her feet. So yeah, while you feel for Jerry to a certain point, really kind of hard to maintain the sympathy on repeat viewings, maybe even through your first viewing of the episode. I'll be honest, I even have a little bit of trouble having sympathy for some of our protagonists in this episode, specifically the governor. The governor goes on a bit of a rant to Steve about Private Joseph Cruz's death, basically saying that Honolulu should be safe uh, for the servicemen that are there on leave. They shouldn't have to worry about being robbed or murdered, which, you know, is reasonable, not just for servicemen, but for everybody. You should be able to go around and not be brutally attacked. Steve, we've got to do something about Hotel Street. Another serviceman was killed in that area a few hours ago. Private Joe Cruz, 173rd Airborne Division, returned to Honolulu for R&R, found stabbed to death in an alley. Yes, sir, I know it. We're on it. It's not good enough. Servicemen here on leave from Vietnam have been subjected to beatings, robberies, now murder. If something isn't done, the whole area will be off limits to all armed forces personnel. Be bad for business. The merchants retailing drugs, sex, and gambling might even march in the palace. Look, Steve, your cynicism has some validity. And I don't want to squeeze five I know that, sir, and I don't want to paint every merchant in the hotel street area with the same black brush. Where there's a rotten spot, we'll dig it out. We have to. Servicemen come back here after months of combat for arrest. The least we can do is guarantee their safety. It will be done, sir. I promise. 
but he specifies Hotel Street because if, because I guess so many uh, servicemen have been robbed or beaten up on this strip, on this strip, that it'll soon be off limits to servicemen. And as Steve says, oh, that'll be bad for business. And he's calling the governor out correctly and saying, so basically the governor's sole motivation is not necessarily for the protection of the servicemen, but because we'll lose money if they're not allowed to run this strip. And naturally, of course, the governor backtracks and says, no, 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 it's it's the safety of the servicemen. They, they're entitled to that. Everyone's entitled to that. But then Steve kind of makes comments about Hotel Street being basically a strip of garbage. It's just booze and smut and gambling and questionable activities. And he later says he doesn't want to paint every proprietor on that street with a, a black brush. But it sounds like he kind of already has and it is uh, just one long smorgasbord of debauchery. I don't know if Hotel Street is still like that, but it, you know, if anybody wants to pay my way to go check it out, I would be more than happy to do that. I am more than willing to risk being exposed to debauchery for the sake of this podcast, especially if it's in Hawaii. Anyway, with 5 in the case, they very quickly bring in Philip Lowe, who is played by, I had to look it up, Will Kaluva. The Philip Lowe character and the John Lowe character are both Asian. Only one of the actors is Asian. That's uh, Randall Duck Kim. Will Kaluva, not Asian. He is wearing eyelid prosthetics in this episode. They are not the same ones that Ricardo Montalban ended up wearing because he can blink. But So not only do his eyes kind of have like um, uh, an illusion of an almond shape it also is very clear that there's something not right about them because of the way the prosthetic is on it looks like he's wearing like a whole lot of eyeliner in addition to whatever is going on with like the upper lid to eyebrow area it's very odd prosthetics and it is a bit distracting it is yellow face but it's not being played as character caricature not being played as a stereotype Philip Lowe is, is your garden variety Hawaii Five-O bad guy. They could have let Will Kaluva be Will Kaluva, not change a single line of dialogue, and you would never know the difference. The Buddhist funeral ceremony at the end might have played a little strangely in 1968 if it featured a white character, but maybe not. But the point is, is that once again, there were other Asian actors that probably could have played this role and they were not utilized, or this role could have just been made for a white character and nothing would have been lost except Randall Duck Kim. He could have been an adoptive brother, I suppose. You know what, I'm thinking too much about this. So anyway, we're led to Philip Lowe. Philip Lowe denies any involvement, which in this case, he's actually telling the truth. He didn't have any involvement in the, the death of this particular soldier. That blame belongs to little brother John. And his confrontation with Joseph Cruz is actually really well done in the sense that he tries to blow him off by using a more vulgar version of all us Asians look alike to you. So you've confused me with someone else. And when Joseph Cruz presses him on this, he actually takes the ticket from him and tears him up. He's basically riding high on feeling invincible because he's got two bigger guys with him. And then that's when Joseph Cruz loses his mind and starts this fight and it comes out on the losing end but only after he bests the two other guys and he's got a hold of John Lowe and John Lowe pulls his knife and, and stabs him and you can see the look of uh-oh on John Lowe's face but then you know a few hours later he's in his brother's club drinking at the bar like nothing happened until he's confronted about it by Philip and Philip really does slap him for his discomfort 
Who hasn't greeted their sibling like that at one time or another? That's for my discomfort with my Garrett little brother. Now we will discuss another little problem. The last bag you picked up was short, almost $600. Look, I just run it. I don't book it. Why lay it on me? Why? There was $200 missing from the tape before that. You're getting to be an expensive messenger boy. I wouldn't steal from my own brother. For this, you would. Junkie, you told me you the stuff. I'd pay my own way. How? With a $100 a day habit, how do you pay your own way? I steal from you, big brother. That's what you said. And when you don't steal from me? I have my own sources. So this confrontation, this back and forth between brothers, is really illustrates the um, the power imbalance between the two of them and how John Lowe is really meant nothing more than a runner in his brother's operation, something that George later capitalizes on when he wants John Lowe to do his bidding. And it's also during this time that we get to get to know Irene and her glorious fashion because she wears some really, really great dresses in this episode. We're talking like brightly colored maxis and she's got a really great uh, mandarin color shift dress she wears and oh, the dress that she's arrested in, just, just phenomenal. Just, she never misses the mark and it's all really bright, bright colors, bright patterns, just, just perfect. Unfortunately, that's the best thing about her because she really is quite underhanded. I mean, she corners Jerry, finds out that his buddy was the one that was murdered and gets him drunk and, and uses that to her advantage to uh, give George a patsy so they can get rid of Philip. This guy will go down for the murder and then all they have to do is get rid of John Lowe. And George is no gem either. He's really kind of an unpleasant person, though he did say something funny at one point when Irene tells him that he's got all of this money coming in. He's got more money than he knows what to do with, and he goes, I can't help it. I'm insecure. I come from a poor background. For the most part, he's he's pretty garbage. Not only is he plotting his boss's demise and looking to get wait for ways to get rid of boss's little brother, and he's willing to pin a murder on this this really messed up young G.I., but he also doesn't even do the murder himself. He has his goon there, Tato, do it for him. And he's really kind of abusive and disrespectful to Irene. Not that she deserves like a whole lot of respect, but I mean, she's doing all of the heavy lifting and, and you're gonna be flip about whether or not you're paying her or what, you're, what her reward in all of this is gonna be. Come on, if that ain't just like a jerk to have everybody else do all of the hard work and then they take the credit. So it's Steve and company's job to sort through all of the, the jerks to find out who the supreme jerk is or the jerks who are responsible for the homicides that they're dealing with. Because they start off investigating Joseph Cruz's death, which leads them to Philip Lowe and then Philip Lowe is murdered and so they start looking into that. And it's painted to look like revenge, that, that Jerry got revenge. He killed Philip Lowe out of revenge for Joseph Cruz's death. He even says, when he's sitting at the table with Irene, because they're talking about Joe being murdered, and she says, well, what would you do? And he goes, you know what I would do, implying that he would, you know, who, he would kill whoever was responsible for this, which gives her the idea to use him as a patsy, because now he's got a motive, and that's pretty handy. And then they go to the trouble of using his ID bracelet, planting that in Philip Lowe's hand. Steve doesn't buy it at first. He's looking at it going, it's a little too neat. Let's get the guy. We need to get this kid and talk to him. 
And he tells Chin Ho. Your bag, Chin. But there must be a thousand places a guy could hide out. Well, you've got a thousand relatives using it. And it's funny because it's true, because I know people like Chin Ho who are apparently related to everyone. And if you do have that many relatives around, you might as well put them to good use. And Kono looks in on John Lowe and George Barker, and then Danny looks into Philip Lowe's private life, which leads him to Irene Park. And the scene where he finally catches up with Irene at the club and talks to her is great because she tries so hard to use her charms, which is what she does at the club to get drinks and money from from the guys that go there and probably the charm that she used on Philip Lowe to get a house from him. She tries to use on Danny and it just doesn't work. My name is Williams. Save it. Oh man, this place is drawing cops like flies. Good reason. What were you doing at the beach last night? Ooh, you come on very strong. A woman was seen driving away early this morning. Well, I think that there are other women on the island. Or haven't you heard? Uh-huh. But you're the only woman who was Philip Lowe's girlfriend. Don't make me laugh. Philip Lowe was old enough to be my father. And generous enough to buy the place for you as a gift. Oh, you dabble in real estate, too. Okay. He bought me a house. But you see, I wasn't at the house last night. Philip used the house whenever he liked. Hey, for a cop, you're kind of cute. Let me buy you a drink. Save it. You were with Private Franklin last night. Yes, and others. Hey, look, I have nothing to hide. Otherwise, why would I be hanging around here waiting for jokers like you to roust me? You're smart enough to know if you ran, we'd make a connection. That I killed Philip Lowe? If you didn't, you know who did, and you know why. The newspaper said that Private Franklin killed him. You know, with this line of yours, you could really make me dislike you. Wait a few hours, and you can really hate me. Now, it's through this investigative techniques that it, it starts to put the puzzle pieces together for Steve and the team. Things are slotting into place. The big score, though, comes from luck. Chin Ho and, and Kono go to check out this Fleabag motel that Jerry might have been staying at, which he is staying at. He, he sees them coming from his window, but they're distracted by Tato, who is across the street getting his shoes shined, and Chin Ho recognizes him as one of George Barker's guys. Now, the thing about Tato is, I'm curious, he's a, he's a tall, thin, rangy-looking guy. with He's got acne scars. He's not hideously ugly, but he's not what you would call attractive in the traditional sense, I would say. And he seems to be obsessed with getting his shoes shined. When we first meet him at the pool hall where George Barker is, he's getting his shoes shined and George sets him up to, to go kill Philip Lowe and he tells him, you know, I will buy you a hundred pairs of shoes and, and, and you're a very own shoe shine boy. And then when he's following Jerry Franklin, he goes to find him and he follows him. He's getting his shoes shined when he first spots him and then he he's getting a shoe shine when he's picked up by Chinho and Kono and I'm just like what is this obsession with the shoe shine and then when he's sitting in Steve's office for the most part he doesn't really have a whole lot of dialogue he he does call George when he finds Jerry and it's a pretty straightforward conversation but when he's sitting in Steve's office talking to Steve he's getting questioned he has slightly effeminate gestures happening and a slightly effeminate 
manner of speaking that really wasn't noticeable prior to this. So I'm not exactly sure what it is. Is if there if all of this is supposed to put together that Tato is queer or what? But it was it's just a very interesting characterization, especially since he's supposed to be a cold blooded killer. That he comes across like that. It 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 kind it definitely kind of sticks in the mind. It, it's noticeable and it sticks in the mind, especially for 1968. But the beautiful thing about Tato is he does know his rights. So when they come in with the gun and says, yeah, this gun was used to kill Philip Lowe, he immediately clams up. Good on you, Tato. Too often people talk when they shouldn't. And credit where credit is due, despite these setbacks, George and Irene are still plotting and they're still conniving to get what they want, which is to get rid of John Lowe and, and also get rid of Jerry Franklin because they believe by eliminating them, they'll be scot-free. And it's that dedication that carries us throughout the end of the episode. And it's actually a very satisfying conclusion. It's satisfying how both homicides are resolved. It's satisfying how Jerry Franklin is exonerated and how George Barker and Irene Park end up going down for what they did. Because you know that's what's going to happen. But Carrot always gets his man. Or in this case, man and woman and man and man. Okay, let's take a peek at this guest cast because it's pretty extensive and we have some pretty interesting names on here. First of all, Private Jerry Franklin was played by Johnny Crawford. You probably best know him, I best know him, as Mark McCain on The Rifleman. He was also a Mouseketeer on the Mickey Mouse Club from 55 to 56. He also showed up in TV shows like Donna Reed, Mr. Ed, Lancer, Big Valley, Little House on the Prairie, Murder, She Wrote. He was in the movie El Dorado with John Wayne and his Rifleman co-star Paul Fix, but I don't think they had any scenes together. Also, Robert Mitchum, James Caan, and Arthur Honeycutt. He was in Village of the Giants with Tommy Kirk, Bo Bridges, Ron Howard, and Bob Random. And the Space Children with Jackie Coogan and Russell Johnson. I have no idea what that is, but it sounds absolutely terrible. Johnny Crawford was also a singer. He does sing in this episode, though, drunkenly. But he also sang on The Rifleman. He released some pop albums as a teen, and then later he performed 1920s swing jazz with the Johnny Crawford Dance Orchestra. I have songs from both, from his bubblegum pop days and from the, the swing jazz band. They're all excellent. And also from his days on the Westerns primarily, I think The Rifleman, he became a trick roper. He is quite talented. Sadly though, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Irene Park was played by Anne Helm. We'll see her in one more episode. She had a recurring role as Molly Pierce on Run For Your Life. She also showed up on Mr. Lucky, an episode of Wagon Train with James MacArthur, Gunsmoke, Big Valley, Adam 12, Brooks Law, Perry Mason, an episode of Hawaiian Eye with Clayton Nalawi, who we saw on the previous episode, uh, no, Blue, no Blue Skies. She was also in the movies Follow That Dream with Elvis and Nightmare in Wax with Cameron Mitchell. That's gotta be a winner. Philip Lowe, as I said, was played by Will Kaluva. We'll see him in one more episode. He showed up in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The New Breed, The Untouchables, Wagon Train, Burke's Law, Wild Wild West, Man from Uncle, Lancer, Mission Impossible, Cannon, Quincy, and he was Charlie Kingman on a TV show called Primus which I don't think has anything to do with the band or Transformers. As I said, John Lowe was played by Randall Duck Kim. We'll see him in two more episodes. He has shown up on Elementary, Person of Interest, Fringe, and also in the movies Matrix Reloaded, Memoirs of a Geisha, Kung Fu Panda, 
John Wick and John Wick 3. George Barker is played by Jonathan Goldsmith, who's billed as Jonathan Lip in this episode. We'll see him in one more episode. He showed up in Perry Mason, The New Perry Mason, Dr. Kildare, Wild Wild West, Adam 12, Bonanza, Mission Impossible, Ironside, Gunsmoke, Eight is Enough, Rockford Files, Barnaby Jones, Chips, Manable, The A-Team, Trapper John, Magnum P.I., Murder, She Wrote, The 89 Dragnet, and The 2003 Dragnet. He also had a recurring role as Bruce Harvey on Dallas. And he showed up in the movies Hang Em High, Ice Station Zebra, Blood Voyage, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. And he showed up in the TV movies Cry Rape and Murder in Peyton Place. Corporal John Anderson, the chaplain, is played by James McEachin, who I love. He showed up in the 1967 Dragnet, Adam 12, Emergency, Ironside, Murder, She Wrote, Rockford Files, Trapper John, Hunter... He had a recurring role as Lieutenant Frank Daniels on Matlock. He was also Harry Tenafly on the short-lived PEI series Tenafly. He was Lieutenant Brock in the Perry Mason TV movies. And he also showed up in the movies Sudden Impact and Every Which Way But Loose. Private Joseph Cruz was played by John Goddard. He actually did two episodes of The Rifleman with Johnny Crawford. He also showed up on Wagon Train, 77 Sunset Strip, Surfside 6, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Perry Mason, Ironside, Adam 12, and Kojak. Saul the Bartender was played by Richard Benedict. Does that name sound familiar? It should. He directed 11 episodes of Hawaii Five-0, including two we've already seen, Full Fathom 5 and Tiger by the Tail. He has 68 total directing credits. But he has several acting credits as well, including Surfside 6, including one episode with John Goddard. Perry Mason, Trapper John, M.D., Circus Boy, The 50s Dragnet, Hawaiian Eye, The Rookies, Ironside. He was also in the movies It, The Terror Beyond Space, and the 1960s version of Ocean's Eleven. Tato was played by Jim Gosa. He showed up in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Man from Uncle, Lost in Space, Land of the Giants, Big Valley, Bracken's World, Starsky and Hutch, Ten Speed and Brown Shoe, MacGyver, and Hardcastle and McCormick. The Buddhist priest at Philip Lowe's funeral was played by Howard Miyaki. We saw him previously as the Buddhist priest in Ways of Love, and he has an excellent singing voice. The tour bus driver that we see and hear briefly at the beginning of the episode is played by Yankee Chang, and he is noteworthy because he was a tour bus driver in the episode Cocoon, and we will see him in 15 more episodes, most of which uncredited, and at least one more as a tour bus driver. He also showed up in episodes of Magnum P.I., Charlie's Angels, I Dream of Jeannie. He also has uncredited roles in Seven Women from Hell, Gidget Goes Hawaiian, and Diamond Head. Finn, one of the thugs, was played by Artie Sue. He had an unknown role in Cocoon. And then Min Lee was played by Vern Hoke. We'll see him in one more episode, and those are his only credits. It's also worth knowing that Herman Wedemeyer is back in this episode as Lieutenant Alta. Now our director of this episode was Seymour Robbie, who I know from his directing several episodes of Green Hornet, which I covered with Dan over on the Eventually Super Train podcast, and you should go listen to that. And the writer of this episode, Mark Rogers, he was mostly a TV writer and did TV movies. We'll talk about them more in later episodes because I didn't write anything down because I ran out of room on my notebook. And that wraps up by the numbers. I really do like this episode. I think it's a very well done episode. I think it's very solid. Even if you can't be completely and totally sympathetic with Jerry Franklin, you do kind of feel bad for him for getting himself into just a worse and worse mess as it goes along. 
And like I said, it's a nicely layered episode without being too convoluted or confusing. At the very least, you should watch it for Irene's wardrobe and Johnny Crawford's drunken singing. Irene, good night, Irene. Irene, good night. Good night, Irene. Good night, Irene. See you in my dreams. Episode 11, Yesterday Died and Tomorrow Won't Be Born. Air date, December 19th, 1968. Directed by Herschel Daughtry. This is three of five for him. And written by John D.F. Black. This is two of ten for him. Steve McGarrett is jogging along the beach and stops to rescue a toddler overcome by the waves. After delivering him to his grateful mother and sending them on their way, Steve jogs a little further only to be shot by a man that he apparently recognizes. Danny races to the scene to find a doctor working on Steve, unsure if he'll live. Unfortunately, the Grateful Mother didn't see anything. She only heard the shots and a car drive away. Danny orders the beach cordoned off and searched before he leaves to check in with the governor. He tells the governor and the attorney general that the island has been sealed off and they're checking into anyone who made threats against Steve. That's all great, but the attorney general and the governor remind Danny that Fiva was responsible for all of the islands, not just finding Steve's shooter. Oh, and Danny, you're in charge. At the office, Danny and the team look over the crime scene photos. They don't have much to go on. They speculate who might have shot Steve or possibly put a hit out on him. Danny lands on a guy named Charlie Mangan. He and Kona go to question Charlie about Steve. Charlie admits to putting a hit out on Steve, but canceled it. He swears he had nothing to do with Steve's shooting, but Danny isn't buying it. He busts him on a bullshit charge of loitering to keep him on ice. Meanwhile, our unseen assailant calls out to another man, calling him Rutgers, and then shoots and kills him. The doctor updates Danny on Steve's condition. He's out of surgery in ICU and extremely critical. There's a moment of somber silence before they're back at work. Charlie Mangan has an alibi, but that doesn't excuse him from the list of suspects that Danny writes up. Lieutenant Leo Loja informs the team of the death of Carl Swinson, saying that the bullets that killed him match the ones taken from Steve. Danny talks to Swinson's landlady. It's Grandma Walton. While Swinson's apartment is searched, but she can't help him, and there's no apparent connection between him and Steve McGarrett. Speaking of Steve, he's rushed back into emergency surgery, which May informs the team of as they try to figure out who Swinson was and why he was killed. Our unseen man watches a woman go into a house from his car. He grabs a gun from the glove compartment and walks up to the door, ringing the bell. The woman answers it. Turns out the woman, Emma, knows our unseen guy. He's her estranged husband, Joe Trinian. He's been away in prison for 15 years. They play an awkward game of catch-up because Joe never wrote and Emma moved on enough to change her name but not get a divorce or stop wearing her wedding band. She isn't sure she wants her old life back. After the emergency surgery, Steve's chances are 70-30 against and Danny has made very little progress in the case. 
He's also saddled with Steve's agenda, meeting with the press and congressmen and whatnot. Thank God for May. Chin Ho talks to some young toughs who attempts to give him some shit, but he refuses to take it. They don't know anything about Steve's shooting, but later come up with some info on Charlie Mangan that allows them to charge him with something legit. The FBI finally gets back to 5-0 about Carl Swinson. Turns out that's not his name. He was in the Navy under his real name, Ben Rutgers, and he wasn't a model soldier. His involvement with petty crime and dirty gambling put him in contact with a less-than-legit supply officer by the name of Joseph Trinian, who was connected to the gambling death of another soldier. McGarrett investigated the case, and Rutgers was a witness during the trial. Joseph Trinian swore throughout the trial that he was being framed and swore that he'd get Steve. Fifteen years is a long time to hold a grudge, if you're an amateur. Emma and Joe continue their awkward catch-up. Joe says that he's going to erase those 15 years and the people who caused them. He's going to finish up some business and then leave for the mainland that night. He wants Emma to go with him, but Emma isn't so sure she wants to go. Joe understands, saying that he's a patient man and starts to leave. Emma asks him where he's going, and he tells her that he's going to take care of that business. Now, obviously, his business is killing somebody else, but the who might surprise you. And because I want you to be surprised... I'm not going to tell you. Instead, I'm going to talk about this episode and how much I like this episode. First of all, we have Danny in charge. And we all know Danny is one of my TV boyfriends. I mean the James MacArthur version, not the Scott Con version. No offense, Scott Con, you're lovely, but James MacArthur stole my heart first. So it's nice to see Dano in charge. And it's obvious he's very emotional about Steve's shooting and very focused on getting the man who shot Steve. And the shooting setup is actually quite well done. We see Steve jogging along the beach in his shorts and his sweatshirt, dressed in navy blue. And he rescues this little kid from getting knocked down in the waves. And mom comes running out and she's like, I only turned my back for a minute. And I'm like, yes, he's a toddler. They're like little Houdinis. You can't turn your back for a minute. They disappear. I digress. So he gets them all squared away. And honestly, you don't think about Steve McGarrett with kids very much. Like, you think he might be too uptight for that sort of thing. But it was very natural. It played really well. I mean, he's really good with kids. Of course, he's Steve McGarrett. But it gets them squared away. He jogs down the beach. And the thing about the killer up to a certain point, we see him we either see just his feet moving around or we see things from his point of view. And when she, Steve is shot, we both see the killer shoot the gun, but we also see, see Steve go down from the killer's point of view. And he takes three shots, and it's... I love Jack Lord. It's really difficult to act as though you've been shot if you've never been shot. You can only go off of what you've seen before and what you think might happen. He, ha he goes down in a very dramatic, like, I'm thinking old-school Western kind of way. And it's, it's a little... It's a little too much. And he goes down after the first two shots and then gets back up and kind of lurches for the guy who's shooting him and he gets shot again. And he gets he gets up and goes for him again and then collapses. Which I believe was supposed to show his dedication for getting the bad guy. But the look on his face, the way he was lurching towards the camera, he looked more like a zombie than a dedicated police officer. Sorry, Steve. Sorry, Jack Lord. Then when the killer leaves, that's very much the point of view. We see it from his point of view. So we see him, like, as you're the killer, get in the car, start the car, and drive away. Point of view is a lot easier to do now than it was back in 1968. The camera equipment now has been 
obviously upgraded considerably. It's lighter, it's easier to use. You can use small cameras to affect the point of view thing. Back in 1968, not so much because the, the equipment was really kind of cumbersome. So it was kind of harder to do back then and they do it really well. And we see that for a good, almost half the episode, anything to do with our, our killer is done from point of view or just not seeing, you know, just seeing his gun or just seeing his feet. The point of view stuff is really good. And what that leaves us with is that we know that Steve recognizes the guy, but we have no idea what the motive is. We're kind of left, you know, floating on that. And so is the rest of the team. Danny gets there to see Steve laid out on the beach with the doctor working on him or examining him. And all you can see is he has a little bit of blood on his mouth, which kind of makes sense. He's wearing dark clothes, so he, you really wouldn't see like bright red blood, but you just see some blood on his lips to, to signify internal bleeding. And Danny's not too thrilled to hear that the, the doctor doesn't know if he'll make it. And so when he's talking to the Aloha, he's already on edge. Where do we start, George? Absolutely no idea, Danny. What kind of an answer is that? Honest one. Don't give me that. Three bullets pumped into him broad daylight on a public beach. You tell me you've got no idea who, why, what, or how? That's right. And things get even more complicated for him when he goes to report to the governor and tells the governor and the attorney general everything he's done so far for this case. The attorney general points out that it's only been like 47 minutes since Steve's been shot and he's done all of this stuff. And he's like, yes, but what about the rest of the islands? Which it comes across as really kind of insensitive from the attorney general and a little bit from the governor's like, and part of, I think, part of the governor's job is to give us tourism facts about Hawaii because he explains about Hotel Street in the last episode. And in this episode, he explains that Hawaii Five O is in charge of the eight Hawaiian islands. And there's like a million people that live on them and they're the state police. They're in charge of policing all of them. So the governor is, I guess, is a little more delicate about it. And He's like, you know, not to say that Steve's not important, but you have all of this other stuff that has to happen too. Whereas the attorney general's like, uh-huh, and what else? Comes across kind of dickish. There's a scene where we get to see Danny dealing with Steve's agenda, what he has to deal with during a typical day or typical week outside of investigating cases. And he's sitting at Steve's desk and May is going through things and saying, well, they want you to appear on the 10 o'clock news about Steve's case. And he says, no, they'll get the information when everybody else does. They have two habeas corpus hearings they need to go to. And Danny says they'll be there. And she's supposed to meet with a senator about a gun control bill. And Danny very poignantly says, one day too late. At first he was going to try to reschedule, but then he's like, no, we'll take care of it. Leave me a note. I'll call him in the morning. So you see all of the stuff that Steve also has to deal with in addition to running 5-0 and investigating all of these cases. And you also get to see how instrumental May is in keeping all of that stuff straight, keeping that schedule straight and keeping... Steve on his schedule. At the end, Danny sends May home and she's like, well, I'm going to stop off at the hospital to check on Steve. And Danny says that he's going to stay and work on stuff in the office just in case. And as May leaves, she says, there's fresh coffee. It's another reminder of how much May is a part of the team and how, how much she contributes to their well-being and to how the team functions. Now, what's great about watching 5-0 investigate this case, not just because it involves one of our own, but because they have so little to go on and yet so much. They have very little physical evidence. Forensics is going over the beach to find anything they can. They do have the bullets after the after Steve's come out of surgery. They take the bullets out so they can use those. But the crime scene photos don't really show much. 
So they don't have a lot of physical evidence to go on, but they have like a huge suspect list because Steve is so widely despised by the criminal element in Hawaii. It could literally be anybody. I think at one point, Chin Ho just says, make a list of, of all of the known criminal elements and take your pick. But the reason why Danny ends up focusing on Charlie Mangan is because of it's the most recent rumor, I think, about him putting out a hit on Steve. And he goes with Kono to, to talk to Charlie Mangan about this. And you get another example of just how emotional Dano is about Steve's shooting. Because he, he starts to go a little far with Charlie. He starts to get physically rough with him. He slams him on the trunk of the car. And Kono warns him and says, you don't want to go down that line. So stops him from getting too rough with him. But he still abuses his power in the sense that he uh, arrests Charlie for bullshit charge of loitering. And he says, you, you'd be surprised what 5-0 can get away with when McGarrett's been shot which kind of implies that the governor and the attorney general will go along with anything Danny does in the pursuit of justice, which is kind of a scary thought. And if it was anyone other than my TV boyfriend, I would be really worried. So we kind of get to watch the fruitlessness of this investigation because Charlie Mangan swears that he he put out the hit, but he canceled it after McGarrett came and talked to him. He didn't want any part of it. He admits that he doesn't mind Steve getting shot, but he's not behind it. And he has an alibi, but Dano is like focused on him. He's not gonna give him up and says, you know, the witnesses can be lying. He doesn't leave the suspect list. And they start listing other people, going through Steve's files, looking at who's made threats against him, looking for any straw to grab, any kind of lead that they can take advantage of. Meanwhile, Steve goes back into surgery because he was hit in the arm, grazed in the side, and hit in the abdomen, I think. So it stands to reason that complications could easily sit in and more than one surgery is probably going to be required, especially being hit in the abdomen. The weird thing though, was that when we see Steve in the hospital bed after his first surgery, he's in an oxygen tent and the doctor comes in and looks at some readout that the nurse gives him, some paper, checks his pupil reaction, just opens his eyes and looks at his, his pupils. And then he takes his pulse by his temple, which I don't think I've ever seen done before. And then just from that minimal info alone, he goes, yes, let's put this man back into surgery. So that's wild. Medicine was so different in 1968. You know, meanwhile, the break in the case comes from unfortunately somebody else getting shot. And what's interesting about it is when we see Trinian shoot him from Trinian's point of view, obviously, he calls out Rutgers. When he does, you really can't understand what you're, what he's saying. Like if you're not, if your ears aren't primed to it, you don't always, like it took me like three tries to realize he was saying Rutgers. So you don't automatically put it together when you say, well, yeah, Carl Swinson's been shot dead. You kind of forget about the fact that he called him by a completely different name. And it's only from those bullets that they're able to tie the death into Steve. And they go and talk to, to Swinson's landlady, who is Grandma Walton. It's Ellen Corby. It's always wild to see her off of Walton's Mountain. But she tells them, you know, he was a good guy. He would never be involved with the law. He went to church. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He didn't run around with women. Just the most boring existence imaginable. And then later we find out, well, no, he was kind of a less than character when he was in the Navy under his real name, Ben Rutgers. He was involved in gambling and whatnot. Never fails. No one is ever that clean. So while they have this very tenuous connection and they're trying to make this connection between Carl Swenson and Steve to see if there is a method to this killer's madness, they're reaching out and, and pursuing all leads, which includes Chin Ho going to talk to this, this group of young toughs, which is just from the first line when the guy calls him a pain in the ancestors to the end is just it's 
just wonderful. Sit down, boys. Any trouble you got is the trouble you make. What you want, Venerable Payne and the ancestor? Any reading you got on the man that hit Steve McGarrick? That and no more smart mouth, or I'll shove it down your throat. You ain't that tough, old man. Now I'm gonna ask you one more time. What do you hear? You're breaking my arm! Last time! Nothing! Nothing! Behave yourself. And watch your mouth, son. You just don't mess with Chen Hao. And while all of this is going on, while we're going through all of this investigation, Joe has found his estranged wife, Emma, and has shown up on her doorstep. And the way they play it, it looks like she's going to be the next victim. When she answers the door, she's like, oh no. Well, of course she's saying, oh no. Her estranged husband that she hasn't seen in 15 years has shown up on her doorstep. That's liable to wreck anyone's day. Why, Joe? Why now? Why do you still wear that band? hard to accept all this time not even a letter you know what we had emma it doesn't end in 15 years or even 1500 i didn't even know you were out of portsmouth it was uh, three weeks ago three weeks ago yesterday and now now it's up to you is that really why you came back here? There could be no other reason. Oh, I don't know. I just don't know, Joe. I'm a different person now. I've even changed my name. And I have a different life. And my little house and my job and my friends. And all of a sudden, just, just like that, you. And it's through their awkward getting, getting to know you that we find out that Joe's been in jail for 15 years and he never even wrote to his wife. So she wasn't sure what was going on. And because he went to jail, she was kind of pushed out of their friends group. So she moved and she changed her name and she got a new job and built a new life. And the scenes are, are really well done because not only are we getting information about our killer, it's also humanizing him somewhat and casting him in a slightly different light. Obviously, he's out for vengeance, but here's this wife that obviously loves him and was willing to stand by him, and he kind of cut off contact with her while he was in the pen, and now they're having this awkward getting to know you again, and, and it's clear that they still feel something for each other, but so much has happened, and this, that, and the other. It really, really plays really well, and part of that is because the two actors, John Larch and Vivi Janis, were married in real life. So the chemistry they have on screen just is 100% grade A natural. She also wears a really smart green paisley dress at one point. Quite lovely. So we know who our bad guy is and we're getting to know him, but we still don't know why he shot Steve or why he shot the other guy, Swenson. And it's actually pretty late in the episode before everything ties together, which makes sense. Danny is pursuing all leads, as is the rest of the team. They're trying to create leads, following all of the evidence. But like real police work, sometimes it doesn't come immediately. And they have to wait until the FBI gets back to them about Carl Swenson because they just can't, because Danny and the rest of the team just can't believe anybody's that clean and they're right. It's then that they get the word that Carl Swenson has really been Rutgers and he was a witness in a case that Steve investigated involving Joseph Trinian and that Joseph Trinian swore vengeance that he would get Steve back for it. He swore he was being framed. So it goes way back. So while they were right in a sense that it had to do with one of Steve's cases, it goes all the way back to his Navy days. 
and they just didn't go back far enough when they were looking for their suspects. And it's after that things kind of uh, start m moving quite quickly because they figure out that Trinian has a wife on the island and that he is the one that they need to be looking for. And not to give too much away, but Dano does go to talk to Emma and it's a really great back and forth between them because while she knows her rights, she won't let him go in the house without a search warrant. Shuts him down when she decides she's done asking questions. He also kind of pokes at her in a way that makes her think because she reiterates what Joe said that Steve framed him. And so Danny asks, well, why? And she says, well, what does it matter? And she goes, well, it must matter. If he went to all the trouble of framing him, why did he frame him? And it kind of like plants that seed of doubt in Emma's mind about her husband that maybe Maybe it's not exactly just like he said. We also get treated to a really great parade towards the end of the episode. And you know what? I don't know if they still have it or not, but I'd like to go. It was pretty badass. Let's get into this guest cast. So as I said, Joseph Trini was played by John Larch. We'll see him in one more episode. He was Deputy DA Jerry Miller on Arrest and Trial. He was also Lieutenant Michaels on the Walter Winchell Files and Gerald Wilson on Dynasty. He also showed up in Dallas, Little House on the Prairie, Lou Grant, Big Hawaii, Six Million Dollar Man, Ironside, Ellery Queen, The Virginian, Wagon Train, Route 66, Gunsmoke. He did three episodes of The Twilight Zone, including playing Mr. Fremont in It's a Good Life. He also showed up in the TV movies Women in Chains, Winter Kill, and Bad Ronald and showed up in movies like Play Misty For Me, The Amityville Horror, and Airplane 2, which is where I know him best. His wife, Emma Trinian, was played by his wife, Vivi Janice. She was Merle Davis on Father Knows Best. She also showed up in Twilight Zone, Route 66, The New Breed, Wagon Train, Perry Mason, The Virginian, Cannon, The Blue Knight, Barney Miller, The Rockford Files, and Richie Brockelman, Private Eye. Now, John Larch and Vivi Janice were married from 1955 until her death in 1988, and they worked together on seven other projects aside from this episode, including episodes of the TV shows Goodyear Theater, The New Breed, Route 66, Tales of Wells Fargo, Wagon Train, and You Are There. They were also in a short called Pages of Death, along with a guy named Paul Pisirny, who played Charlie Mangan in this episode. They didn't have any scenes with him in this particular episode. Paul Pisirny also played Lee Hobson on The Untouchables, Dr. Dan Garrett on the soap The Young Marrieds, and he was Fred Norris on The Red Hand Gang. He also showed up in Circus Boy, Dragnet, Adam 12, Emergency, Hawaiian Eye, Bourbon Street Beat, The Rebel, Perry Mason, The Immortal, Here's Lucy, Kolchak, The Incredible Hulk, Trapper John MD, TJ Hooker, Sledgehammer, Simon and Simon, Diagnosis Murder, and he showed up in uh, movies like Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, Capricorn One, Airport, and House of Wax, the good Vincent Price one. As I said, the landlady, Mrs. Feathertree, was played by Ellen Corby. It's Grandma Walton on The Waltons. She was also Henrietta Porter on the TV show Trackdown. And she showed up in things like 77 Sunset Strip, Perry Mason, Wagon Train, Surfside Six, Thriller, The Rifleman, Beverly Hillbillies, Adam's Family, Adam 12, and showed up in movies like Support Your Local Gunfighter, The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, Night of the Grizzly, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and The Strangler. Mrs. McGovern, the mother of the little boy who Steve rescued, she was played by Anna Leah. This is her only credit. Dr. Cohen was played by Al Eben. 
We'll see him in 53 more episodes, usually playing Doc Bergman, the Emmy. He also showed up in Petticoat Junction, The Beverly Hillbillies, and Charlie's Angels. Dr. Rothstein was played by Ted Hard. We'll see him in one more episode playing a different doctor, and those are his only credits. The head of the gang of young toughs that Chin Ho talks to, MK, was played by Lanny Kai. We'll see him in two more episodes. He was Kelly on Adventures in Paradise. He also showed up in Hawaiian Eye and in the movies Blue Hawaii and The Late Liz. Also worth noting, Douglas Mossman is back again as Lieutenant Lealoha. And that is Yesterday Died and Tomorrow Won't Be Born. A really great episode. The first of many in which Steve will be somehow injured. I joked in my blog post when I first wrote about Hawaii Five-0 that I think that McGarrett got shot or blown up at least once a season. I'm going to try to keep track of that to see how accurate that was. But it is a really great episode because we do get to see Danny take the lead. We do get to see sometimes how frustrating police work can be when you're trying to solve these crimes and you have absolutely nothing to go on or you have evidence or you have information but you just don't know how it all works together. It kind of makes what could be a very boring investigation in the sense that um, we're not involved in any police chases, there are no shootouts, the pieces aren't falling together one after another real quickly. It actually makes it interesting. And we do have the stuff with Joseph Trinian and his wife to help balance that out. Probably one of the easiest episodes Jack Lord got to film. He was unconscious most of the time and off screen a big part of the time. So definitely give it a watch because even though you know that Steve's going to pull through, it's still really nice to watch the team rally around him at his most desperate hour. 15 years is a long time to hold a grudge. And that concludes episode six of Bookham Dano. Thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate everyone who takes the time to listen to me and listen to the show. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. There you will find the home of Bookham Dano, and you will also find the home of all of my Rerun Junkie posts, all of my blog posts, links to my published work, links to my Patreon. You can even buy me a cup of coffee if you want to. But if you're worried about missing a single word of my witty wisdom, you can always follow me on Twitter at kikiwrites. I think if we learned anything today, it's that both gambling and jogging can be hazardous to your health. So remember, if you're going to do either, you better have 5-0 on speed dial. Until next time, aloha. <laughs>